So uh, Tanya and I uh, have wrestled over time with with questions like this. Why why does Jesus seem so far away? Um, Has God abandoned us? Um, Why does it seem like following Jesus is at times so hard? Um, And so um, as, as we have have wrestled with that question uh, and these questions. We have at different times uh, experienced these things in different ways. Um, we, uh, when when we were first married in 1998, we uh, worked for a, a ministry that um, it, I thought that that ministry is, was going to be uh, where we would end up, um, you know, kind of ongoing for the rest of our life. Um, and when th- that didn't work out the way that that I thought it would. Um, it, it was something that was demoralizing for me. And and um, I remember that the people in this ministry that we were working for, that we wanted to give uh, our life to serving, um, they they treated us really badly. And um, and we ended up leaving there. And and as we left, we left with questions like, Jesus, are are you far away? Have you abandoned us? Um, why is it that trying to serve you? Is so difficult. When in in 2001, um, I was laid off from a, a dot com because the dot com bubble burst, and um, and 200 of my coworkers and I were all let go on the same day because the the company had filed bankruptcy. And um, and what made matters worse was um, one of my subordinates that, that had worked for me for about two years. Um, uh, she filed a, a lawsuit against the company and she didn't just sue the company, but she named me specifically in the suit. And and she had a legitimate reason to sue the company. She had uh, been harassed by one of the vice presidents and, and it was, I mean, it was a legitimate thing, but she named me um, largely because uh, she knew I was a Christian and she um, had felt uncomfortable talking to me about the sexual harassment and her part in that um, because she was like, oh, he's a Christian, and and I feel like maybe he's going to pass judgment on my kind of promiscuous lifestyle. And and so she named me in that. And I remember thinking, like, Lord, I did everything I could to to do things um, right and to uh, to honor you with my life there and to to tell people about Jesus in that workplace. And yet, um, for whatever reason, um, not only have I lost my job, now I'm being sued. And so I'm wondering, like, Lord, are you there? Have you abandoned me? I why is following you so hard? We, we've probably all um, asked these questions at one point or another, where if, if you're a Christian, you have, have experienced things where you just, you wonder, God, are you there? And, and if you were there, do you even care? And some of you who maybe you aren't yet a Christian, maybe it's because you're asking the question like, well, I don't know, is, is God going to be there for me? Does God actually care for me? Um, today, we're going to be looking at a, a group of people who um, they're asking these same questions. And and they are wondering in their heart, like, why is Jesus so far away? And and does he care? And has he abandoned us? And, and um, it, why is trying to do what he asked me to do so difficult? 
And and um, we've been in the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, um, we we see these nine signs. And and John, as he writes them, um, he he gives nine very specific things that that in each instance Jesus does these unbelievable miracles, and and he meets a physical need or a felt need, um, but he does something incredible, and then he he just takes it the next step and 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 makes it even more almost unbelievable. It's, it's, um, uh, he, he turns water into wine, but he doesn't just turn it into wine. He turns it into the best wine. He, he heals a boy, but he doesn't just heal a boy by touching him. He heals him from a distance. There's a guy who's been, um, uh, like sick for 38 years and, and he heals him. Um, he doesn't just give sight to a blind man, but a man who was born blind. And last week or two weeks ago, when, when we looked at, at, uh, John chapter six, Jesus doesn't just feed 5,000 people with, you know, just a, a little tiny lunch. He leaves leftovers, like 12 baskets. Of, so they start with this little tiny handful of lunch. And somehow, after 5,000 people are fed, there are 12 baskets left over. And so Jesus does the unbelievable and then takes it a step further and does something even more incredible. And in each one of these instances, um, he offers us proof of who he is, and then he asks us to believe. John said that he recorded these things, that we might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, we might have life through his name. And so um, in, in each of these incidents, that's that's what he's doing. And so um, when, when we were in John chapter 6, uh, two weeks ago, we were reading about the feeding of the 5,000. And then at the end of John chapter 6, we, we looked at when Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. And, and, and so we saw him uh, multiply bread, and then we heard him say, hey, it's so much more important that you have eternal bread, that you have something that sustains your soul forever. And, and I am that. And he said these words, and, and people had a really hard time with it. But squeezed between these two um, uh, things that were related in terms of they saw the bread, and then he said, I am the bread. Um, there's the story of Jesus walking on water. Now, the, the story of Jesus walking on water is um, is one that, that lots of us have heard in, in Sunday school, etc. Um, but hopefully, we'll we'll read it this morning, and, and uh, you'll have some fresh eyes uh, as, as you look at it. So, let's see. Um, when when uh, we we look at this passage, I think one of the things that's important is that we look at this passage and we understand um, that this is not a, a parable, right? Um, uh, when when these things are are recorded, they are recorded as such that. Um, uh, we we can look at them, and because we see ourselves in them, at times we tend to look at them, and we we think of them more allegorically than than as historical things that happened. And I, I want you to understand that that John chapter six, both the story of the feeding of the five thousand and the story of Jesus walking on water, they are historical events. They are things that actually happened, and and yet. 
um, because of the things that happen um, and because there is imagery in other places, like in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, um, uh, the, the psalmist is saying, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink into the deep where there is no foothold and I have come into deep waters. And he says, deliver me from sinking in the deep. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let no flood sweep over me or this deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. And so when you look through um, Old Testament poetry, uh, it is full of examples of, of water and, and depth um, uh, being things that, that uh, are compared to trials and tribulations in this life. And so um, it's natural for us to see some of these things in, in this passage and, and just go, yeah, I, like I, I can see myself in this. And, and I can understand the desperation that the disciples were feeling. And, and I can see that it's good that, that when Jesus um, uh, shows up, uh, that, that, it's, that it's good for me to long for him to show up for, for my sake as well. And so um, in this passage, we're, we're going to watch as Jesus, who has just done this amazing miracle, they have seen the miracle, um, and they they have all kind of been astonished by it. We're, we're going to see that he then tests their newfound faith. They have seen him do this thing, and you know that they have come to a point where they're believing. And we know at the end of the chapter... Uh, Peter makes this this very famous proclamation, like, where else would we go? So we know that, that their faith is growing. And so he sends them on into a, a bit of a trial to kind of test their faith. And so he is going to see if he can turn their fear into faith. And so in, John, in chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, okay? So he uh, goes to the mountain, and, and you have to remember where they are. They're along the Sea of Galilee, and, and the Sea of Galilee is um, uh, about 700 feet below sea level, and it sits surrounded by hills, and then there is like the mountain, the big mountain, Mount Hermon, and Mount Hermon goes up to about 9,200 feet above sea level. And so it's, for those of you who have been to Maui, it's like being on the beach and looking up at Haleakala. You're on the beach, and at the, the peak is about 10,000 feet away, and it's 95 degrees on the beach, and there's snow and ice up on the top of the mountain. That is is kind of the, the place where Jesus Jesus is. He's, he's along an inland lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is also called uh, Tiberias, and, and he is uh, with the disciples, and, and they are going to go down to the sea, and he is going to go up to the mountain. And so he's going to be probably on Mount Hermon, and, and he's going to be in a place where he can look down over the sea. And it says um, uh, that um, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, and they got in a boat, and they started across Capernaum. Now, if if um, you weren't, you know, if you were only reading John, you might wonder, like, hey, what are they doing? Why are they wandering off? Are they doing something on their own? But in, in Matthew 14, it says that he directed the disciples to get in the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone. And so we know that the, 
The disciples just aren't acting on their own. They're actually doing the thing that Jesus told them to do. They told, he told them that they were to go to the boat. And so um, they, they are, are going down to the boat. And John chapter 6, um, it, it begins this story um, kind of like all good campfire stories. It was a dark and stormy night. It was, it was dark and Jesus hadn't come to them. And the sea became rough because of the strong wind that was blowing. Now, it be, when, when you think about an inland lake like that, and you think about a cold air 10,000 feet above where they are, and the way that it rushes down the hill and it hits with that hot air at the, at the bottom, um, it was very common to have uh, big storms, lots of rain, high winds, big waves. And so uh, here's, here's the disciples, and they are obeying what Jesus said, and they're going out sometime after dinner, and they are getting into the water and into this boat, and, and a storm is coming. Now, because we read the Bible and we see fishermen in boats, we tend to think like, oh, Jewish people, like they were, they were seafaring people. They, they were people who were out on the water all the time. The, the truth is, is that, that Jewish people, by and large, were not people who spent a lot of time on the sea. In fact, they didn't have any uh, trade out into the Mediterranean, or they didn't have boats that went out. They were, were kind of like a secluded group. They didn't try to open up trade. So they weren't people who were used to living on the water. They had some some fishermen who had little small boats that would do little excursions out to go fishing and, and such. But it was, it was typically within a day or within an evening, they were out there for a few hours. They caught a bunch of fish and they came in. These aren't people who build boats that you sleep in. These are little boats. And so here they are in a little boat and and the sea becomes rough and the wind begins to, to grow strong. And it says that when they had rowed three or four miles, now you got to think this, this lake is 30 miles long and it's eight miles wide. And so they have rowed three or four miles. They are out in the middle of things, and and they saw Jesus. Now, when when we we read that that they were out three or four miles, um, our our tendency is to not kind of see this for for what it is. And and in Mark chapter six, it says that Jesus had taken his leave to pray, and he went up to the mountain. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, so think about this. They've, they've left um, they, probably shortly after dinner time, And they get in a boat, and they begin trying to go across the sea. The sails are no good, so they begin to row. And, and so the third watch of the night, it's, it's their fourth watch of the night. It's three o'clock in the morning. And and for probably six or seven hours, they have been rowing and they have been trying to get across the sea. And they're probably far enough out that they're thinking, we might as well try to get to the other side. We, we're halfway there. It's as far to go across as it is to go back. And Jesus instructed us to go. And so they are, are trying to work their way across. And yet they're, they're making no headway. And, and the, the, the question that has to be in their mind is, why isn't Jesus here? Why did Jesus send us to do this? Why is Jesus absent? Has he abandoned us? Is, is he not with us? Why is obeying Jesus so hard? 
And so it says that that they were were rowing and the the wind was against them. And and Mark chapter six, I think, is great because it it allows us to get more of a big picture view of what's happening in John chapter six. What's happening is Jesus is on the mountain and he's up there praying. And he's up there praying and he can look down and he can see them. So so he saw that they were making headway painfully and the wind was against them. He's on the mountain and he's praying and he is seeing them. What do you think he's praying about? He's praying for them. And so you you don't really understand that until you look backwards at the other gospels and go, oh, okay, Jesus is on the hill and he's praying for his disciples who are out in the sea and they're facing this raging storm and he sees that they're not making any headway and that's why he goes out. And so... In John chapter 6, when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And, and you, just, you, you have to like, just see the, the picture of this. Um, Jesus sees that they're not making any headway. And, and like Romans 8 says, Romans 8 tells us that, that Jesus didn't just die, but he rose, and that now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is always praying for us. And so Jesus has been praying for these guys, and these guys have been rowing for maybe six or seven hours, and they are tired, and they are scared, and, and they wonder if Jesus is going to show up, and they feel like Jesus is distant, and, and they feel drained, and they feel powerless, and they feel like maybe their faith was misplaced. And so Jesus is coming to them in the midst of the storm. And and what we know later on is just a few verses, Jesus is going to make this comment, and he's going to say to the to the crowds that are that are there after this whole thing's over, he's going to say, this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing that he's given me. But these guys, I think when they hear those words, they're going to hear them different than the crowd, but they haven't heard those words yet, and so they don't know, is Jesus going to lose me? Is, is, is this the end for me? And, and why does he seem so far away? And when he shows up, it says that they were frightened. In, in um, Matthew 14, it, they, they literally scream. It's a ghost, and and they cry out in fear. And so, when even when Jesus shows up, he he scares the pants off him. And you wonder, Jesus, why is following you so hard? For for I think some of us, when when um, we see Jesus, and and um, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, I'm, um, when we when we see Jesus um, show up, um, sometimes um, the idea of, of Jesus showing up um, to be the solution to the problem actually seems harder than the problem itself. Um, I don't know if, if uh, any of you remember years ago, and probably a decade or more ago, um, uh, Joan Osborne wrote a song, um, What If God Was One of Us? And I remember the, the second verse uh, of that song struck me because she asked, um, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant that you had to believe in Jesus and the saints and the prophets? And and for her, the 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 question of, of who God is and what happens if he shows up, um, it's it's actually worse if if he is who he says he is. I, I had a friend named David, and uh, David lives in Dallas. He had gone to a, a state school in Texas, and um, we were having a discussion one time about faith. And he said, hey, look, I, you know, uh, there's certain things that, that you and I are probably on the same page with and certain other things that we probably never will be. And I said, well, like what? And he said, well, I believe that there has to be a God. And I said, oh, really? You know, like, 
was that from growing up in church? And he goes, no, that was from um, uh, my statistical probability class in college. And I said, really? He goes, oh, yeah. He said, we looked at the statistical, the statistical probability of, um, of life happening by chance. And, and he goes, did you, did you know that the statistical probability of life happening by chance and us being here by, by random you know, events of evolution is, is essentially the same as a monkey sitting down and just starting to type randomly and, and typing out the whole Webster's Dictionary or a bomb going off in a, a, a junkyard and suddenly there's a fully formed 747? And I was like, well, yeah, I, I actually did. But I, and I'm thinking, I would love to know who his teacher was because his teacher clearly was a Christian, right? Um, and he says, yeah, once, once I understand understood the the statistic probability of evolution i had to lay it aside because i realized it was foolish and he said but um just because i don't believe in the statistical probability that there isn't a god um i i have a hard time uh, with the notion that he might be personal or might want to know me. And so I do what I can to avoid actually coming to know this God, because if I actually know this God, I know that there will be um, uh, like a, a moral um, choice that I have to make, that there will be um, a, a responsibility placed on me, because once I know him and know that he's knowable, then I have to respond to him as the one who made me. And and it just, it, and I, I, I remember saying, David, that's like saying, if I don't know that the speed limit is 25, I can drive 55. And he's like, I know, but he's like, ignorance is bliss and I'm going to choose bliss. And that was, he for him, the solution was worse than the problem. For, for most of us that are on this call, that's not where we are. For, for us, the, the difficulty of, of seeing Jesus send us into the storm, the difficulty that we have is that we go, he made the storm. And he put me here. This this is what he did. And we have to wrestle with the idea of of if if Jesus is if following Jesus seems to be something that's difficult and hard, then the fear inside of us is it's difficult and hard because God doesn't care about me. And so if we are wrestling with um, the difficulty of following Jesus, it's because we're asking the question, like, does God even love me? Does God care about me? And, and we have to understand that God has a plan that's different than ours. First Peter uh, says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Acts 14 says, we must go through many tribulations before we enter the kingdom of God. In James chapter 1, which we studied not very many months ago, count your trials as friends, knowing that that they produce steadfastness. When we are going through these things, we're going through these things because God is shaping us and God is directing us and God wants to take our fear and he wants to turn it into faith. And so he is shaping these disciples like he is shaping us. And so when um, we are going through these things, it's important that we understand what Paul said. Let's not grow weary in doing what's good. If Jesus has given us instruction, then then 
Press on, because in due season, we will reap if we don't quit. He doesn't want us to quit. He wants to turn our fear into faith, and he wants us to be obedient, and he wants us to press on, even though it's difficult. And he wants us to understand he does love us, and that he has a plan, and he is shaping our souls. And so um, uh, in John chapter 6, he comes alongside of them, and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, um, I, there's times that I wish I could write a translation of the Bible because I read that and I go, oh, okay, you know, it is I, don't be afraid. But when you read that in, in Greek, it reads completely different. When you read it in Greek, there's two words, ego, which means I am, and emi, which means I am. And so it's basically, he comes alongside of them and he says, I am that I am. Do not be afraid. Now, you've heard those words before, right? You, you've, they, Exodus chapter 3, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say, the God of your father has sent you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so here's Jesus coming alongside of the boat. And he is, is saying to them, I am. And what is he saying? He is saying, I am the one who parted the waters. I am the one that Isaiah wrote of. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, I am Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What's amazing, later on we're going to read, um, as, as, as Peter makes his proclamation of faith, we know he was thinking about this passage because he quotes it. And so when, when Jesus comes alongside of them and, and he says, I am, um, I am that I am, do not be afraid. It says that they were glad, they rejoiced, they had great joy to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. When, when, when um, we look at this and we understand what it was that, that Jesus wanted to do and how it is that he accomplished it, um, then we can see Jesus wanted to turn their fear into faith. And the way that Jesus turned their fear into faith was by proclaiming his name and proclaiming who he is to them and proclaiming the truth. I am that I am. I am the one who rescued you for fathers. I am the one who you can trust to rescue now. I am the one who kept my promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I am the one who will keep my promise to you. I have chosen them, and I have chosen you, and I have called you by name. And each of these instances, we see Jesus is, is giving them the opportunity to continue to grow in their faith, and they receive him with gladness, and they experience, and it's not temporary joy. When it says that they were glad to take him in, <clears throat> this joy that they have, that when they realize that Jesus, in, in Mark it says, uh, no, I'm sorry, in Matthew, in Matthew, when, when Jesus comes alongside of them, one of the disciples says, certainly, 
you are the son of God. And so you see their faith and you see that they have come to, to see Jesus for who he is and they are believing and it brings them joy and that joy doesn't go away. In fact, later on in the passage, when the other disciples are starting to walk away, it says that in, in John chapter six, verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back and they no longer walked with Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, well, do you want to go away as well? The joy that they have from from Jesus turning their fear to faith comes out and they say, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. There's that Isaiah passage. We, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the Holy One of Israel. And what does Peter say? He says, you are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. When you said, I am that I am, we believed and it brought us joy and we have come to believe and no matter what, we're not turning back. That is the result of what happens when when Jesus turns your fear into faith. It transforms you, and it transforms the way that you think. When when we began, I, I told you two stories, one about a, a ministry that we left that um, uh, had treated us very badly, um, and and I responded to that very badly. Um, I responded by uh, allowing my fears to overcome me. I, I, uh, was, uh, I had this plan. It was a 50-year plan. And my plan was to work for this ministry and to run camps internationally. And, and I had it all mapped out. And, and I had it mapped out before I ever met Tanya. And, and uh, I knew what I was going to do. And all of a sudden, in a moment, all that stuff fell apart. And all my fears came, well, what now? What am I going to do now? That's the thing I was preparing for. Every decision I've made for the last 10 years has been with that in mind. Now what's going to happen? And and I got so frustrated and angry at God taking away my plan. And I got so frustrated and angry at Christians that I thought, I don't want anything more to do with Christians. And so we moved from Tampa, Florida to Dallas, Texas. And, and we went with the idea that I was going to finish up seminary. Um, but I didn't really really want to go to seminary because I didn't even know what I was going to do with my life. What I really wanted to do is just stop being around Christians and the church. And so I stopped going to church and I, I tried to find an excuse not to go to church. And so I picked up scuba diving and I wanted to become a scuba instructor so that I could work every weekend and not go to church. And, and it was a bad choice. And that bad choice was to lean into my fears and lean into my anger and my disappointment with God taking away the thing that I thought I had all lined up. And and I began to, to um, have all of my priorities completely out of whack, and it began to destroy me. Like, I was angry and bitter all the time. It, it destroyed, it was destroying the way that I worked, the way that my relationships were, my relationship with Tanya, my relationship with friends. Um, I remember my, my friend, Jason, who our uh, Jason is named after uh, saying, Tim, you are so bitter. Like you, you're hard to be around sometimes. And I remember thinking like, okay, something's got to change. And God began to like reshape my heart and began to show me my need for him and even my need for the church and understanding that I couldn't be complete without the church and the church needed me. And and there was this this growing recognition that, that my bitterness has not helped anything at all. And I finally came to a point where I was ready to submit and I was I, I there was things I had to do. I had to book a plane ticket to Florida 
to go sit down with people who had wronged me and then ask their forgiveness because I had been carrying bitterness and hatred and anger in my heart and I had maligned them with my words. And so I, even when I went, they did it badly. They received it badly. Their response was, well, we might not have been as right as we normally are. And, and I still had to just say, you know what? This is not about their response. This is about my obedience, and I'm going to do the right thing. And what had seemed like the easy thing, I'm just going to escape it all. I'm going to, to like go scuba dive all the time. Um, uh, really, it turned out to be a much harder thing to fix. The, the thing that I thought would be really hard, <clears throat> the dot-com, where a girl is like suing me and I'm jobless. And uh, that actually turned out to be something that was pretty easy. Um, lawyers deposed me for, I don't know, half a day, six hours, something like that. And they read every email I had written the whole time I was at the company. And they went through every file that I had. And they, they were, were going through everything that they could. And they couldn't find anything wrong. And, and in fact, uh, some some of the folks that were involved in the lawsuit told me that the, the lawyers finally had to pull this girl aside. And they said, look, we've got to take this guy's name off the lawsuit because if his name's on the lawsuit, you're going to lose because he's squeaky clean. There's nothing that we, we can't find a single thing where he did something wrong. And if you put that guy as part of the lawsuit, any jury is going to look and go, no, he did everything exactly right. And so... They, they, re, the lawyers reached out to the CEO of the company and to the in-house counsel, and they said, "Hey, we're making this change." And what was kind of interesting to me was in uh, the few days after they had that conversation, both the CEO and the in-house counsel called me separately, and they said, "Hey, I just want you to know, in this discovery process, um, we have seen." Um, your integrity and the way that you've walked through this with, with this girl. We've seen how you handled things, um, how they couldn't find anything to pin on you whatsoever. And we, our respect has grown for you so much. If there's ever anything we can do to help you find a job or to uh, help you in the future, just call because we want to do business with guys like you. And, and the thing that I thought was going to be super hard turned out to be super easy. It was God was going forward and I just couldn't see him at work. I couldn't see that he was on the hill and he was praying for me and he was orchestrating things and he was going to show up when I needed him. And so if you are facing difficulty, if you're facing a family issue or a loss of job or a problem at your job or relationship issues or financial issues or wayward children or in all of those things, you may find yourself asking the question, Jesus, are you there? Have you abandoned me? Jesus, why is following you so hard? Do you even care about me? And if if you are asking that, then you're asking the right questions because Jesus wants to answer those things. When, when, uh, in between these two incidences, um, there, I met a guy named Robert Stiers and Robert and I worked together in a sales organization in Texas. And Robert told me a little bit about his life over a series of lunches and different things. And um, he had been in ministry and and uh, he had been called to be the director of an orphanage in Oregon. And this is a guy who he had grown up in Texas. His wife was from Texas. They never wanted to leave Texas, um, but they, they had this opportunity. And so they moved their family to Oregon. And and when they got there, the, the orphanage wasn't doing well. And the board of the orphanage had said, hey, we want to do things like George Mueller did. And we never want to actually ask for money. We just want to pray it in. Well, they had a different uh, 
experience than George Mueller had. And they ended up having to go bankrupt and close the orphanage. And so when they did that, they said, hey, um, Robert, we don't have any money to help you move back to Texas. We don't have any money to pay you ongoing. Um, the only thing that it, you've you've got that comes from here is um, even though the the orphanage is closing and we're, we're placing these children elsewhere. The bakery in town that brings us bread each day has agreed that they'll continue to bring bread so that your family has some bread. And that, that was all he had. And so uh, he opened up his Bible and he was trying to figure out, Lord, what do I do? And he opened it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And so he said, you know what, if I'm going to look for a job, I'm going to look for a job like it's my full-time job. And I'm going to get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I'm going to get showered, and I'm going to get dressed, and I'm going to be out looking for a job by 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to work until 5 o'clock at night, and I'm going to try to find a job. And so he got up, and he was trying to find a job. And the, that first day, um, while the, the copies of his resume were being made, um, he kind of started mapping out like the businesses that were in town. And he started going to these businesses one at a time, like just walking in, kind of, here's my resume, he's wearing a suit, he's, uh, I'm looking for a job, is there somebody I can speak to, and who's the decision maker? And so he's just walking into businesses, one after the next, after the next. And and at the end of the first day, <clears throat> he gets done and he thinks, well, what am I going to do now? We don't have any food at home. Um, and so uh, he, in despondency, he opens up his Bible. And he, as he opens up his Bible, it's John chapter 21. And Jesus has just died, and he has not yet risen. And the disciples are despondent, and they are ready to call it quits. And one of them says, I'm going fishing. And the rest of them said, well, we're going to go too. And an idea sparks in Robert's mind, and he thinks, I know. My, my son's fishing rod is in the trunk of the car. And so he drives to the ocean and he pulls out the fishing rod and he doesn't have any bait. But he thinks, you know what, I'm going to go fishing. And so he throws the, the line out into the water. And on his first cast, he catches a little tiny fish. And so he takes out his pocket knife and he cuts it up and he uses it. And at the end of the night, he has used that little tiny fish for bait and he's caught a bucket of fish. And so he goes home with a bucket of fish. And so they have fish and they have bread. And so the next day he does the same thing. He gets up and he's making copies of his resume and he's mapping out where he's going to go for the day and who the, where the businesses are. And he makes notes as he goes to each one, who the decision maker is. And he's talking to them and, 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 he decides that that when they say, hey, we don't have anything for you, he wants to offer them something. And so with each one, he says, I tell you what, um, is there anything I can do for you? And they say, well, what do you mean? You're out of work. And he's like, I know, but I'm a Christian and I pray all day long as I walk from place to place. Can I pray for you right now about something that's going on in your life? And he would stand on the doorstep of these businesses with these men and these decision makers, and, and he would pray for them. And one after the next, they would say, you know what? You're a really great guy. If there's something I can do for you in the future, I really want to. Just give me a call. I wish I had a job I could give you. And and for four months, he went from door to door trying to find a job. And for four months, every night at five o'clock, he went and he picked up the bread. And at 5.15, he went to the ocean and he went to fish. And so as he went to fish, he would catch a bucket of fish and they come back. And so for four months, his family ate bread and fish. And at the end of four months, um, he uh, went into a, a, a business and they said, 
well, hey, we would like to talk to you. Um, when are you open for a, an interview? And he said, I'm open right now. And so they kind of ushered him in and they said, look, we sell business supplies. And um, if we were going to hire you as a sales guy, we would have to know that you have a a plan uh, for how you would sell business supplies. And he goes, oh, yeah, I got a plan. And they said, what's the plan? And he pulled out his little notebook that he had been using for four months. And he said, on the first day, I would call, and he named the business. And I would talk to, and he named the decision maker. And the next day, I'd go visit him. And then I would call, and, and then I would go visit. And so on one day, I would call, and the next day, I would visit. On one day, I would call the next. And they said, how long, like, you've got this whole notebook full of of names and with your current list, visit, like calling on one day and visiting on the next, how long do you think it would take for you to get through your list? And he said, eight months. And they said, you're hired. And so they hired him on the spot. And he said, well, look, I need a signing bonus because my family is in desperate need of being able to buy groceries. And they said, sure. At the end of t- tomorrow's workday, you come in, we'll have your signing bonus for you. And so he worked that day. And then he went in and, and they had a signing bonus. And he rushed to the bank before 5 o'clock. And he deposited it and, and got some cash out so that he could go to the grocery store. And then out of habit, he went to the, to the uh, orphanage and he picked up bread and he went down to the ocean and he cast out his line. And Robert said, not only did he not catch a single fish that day, but in the rest of his life, he has never caught another fish. And so he said, you know, God provided for the time that he needed, but not for anything beyond that. And at the point where they could buy groceries, that was it. Well, the other thing that happened was he was given health insurance and his daughter had been very, very ill for the whole four months that this was going on. And so they went in and they said, um, they went to the specialist and said, um, what is wrong with her? And they said, well, she has ulcerative colitis. And, and they said, we, we can't imagine that she's had this for this many months and, and not had any treatment. We, we like, tell us about her diet. And he said, Oh man, you know, for the last four months, I haven't been able to feed her anything but bread and fish. And they began to laugh. And the doctor said, well, in some cosmic coincidence, the exactly the thing that she needs fish oil, which we are going to prescribe to her anyway, that's the thing she's been getting that would like help soothe things. And, and, as, as Robert told me the story, what he said was, he's like, time after time, I asked, Lord, where are you? Do you care? In me, why is trying to follow you so hard? And time after time, God provided, and I couldn't see that behind the scenes, he was doing something to preserve the health of my daughter. I kept complaining about fish and bread, and fish and bread was exactly what she needed. When, when Jesus seems absent, and when Jesus seems far away, and when Jesus seems like he's doing something that you don't understand, and you wonder if he cares about you, Jesus is praying for you, and Jesus wants to walk with you, and he wants to come alongside of you and speak to you the truth of who he is. I am that I am. I am the Lord your God, the father, the, the, the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I am the rescuer, the one who always keeps his promises, and I will keep my promises to you. As we look at this passage, we see the, 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 the things that Jesus did to 
to call these people from fear to faith are the things that Jesus always does to call us from fear to faith. When we came to the gospel, we came to the gospel, and and if we embraced it, we embraced the idea that we were desperate and without hope on our own, and that we desperately needed someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and we cast all of our care on Jesus, and we asked him to be the solution for us and to be the one to care for our souls ongoing. And when you look at what the disciples did, the disciples are in a desperate place. For six, seven hours, they've been rowing. They are tired and they are worn out. They understand their desperation. And Jesus comes alongside of them and he says, I am that I am. I am Yahweh, the covenant keeper. I am the one who can protect you and take you through this. And they joyfully received him. They joyfully took him into the boat and allowed him to care for their well-being. And immediately they got to where he wanted them to go. And and when we look at that, we see that the thing that that we believed for the gospel, that, that we need to admit our sin, that we need Jesus to be the substitute for us, that we need Jesus to, to be the one who cares for us ongoing, those same things are the things he's calling us from fear and to faith now, that we see our desperate need and we don't try to do it on our own, that we receive him joyfully. And when we receive him joyfully, he transforms things. That is the gospel for salvation. That is the gospel for sanctification. That is the gospel that Jesus wants us to understand. Jesus did many incredible miracles, but this one was written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that it is true, that every Word of God is true, that every verse in Scripture is is given to us, uh, that we might be fully equipped, that we might be complete and mature, lacking no good thing. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you have given us that that you will walk alongside of us and that the waters rising up and the fires surrounding us and the troubles and the trials and the tribulations are all things that that are in your control and that you are shaping us into your image that you are uh, allowing us to understand your nature and your character your goodness and your grace lord i pray that as we go through our trials and our tribulations as there's folks that are in our church that are sick lord i i pray for for gina I pray that as she goes through this, you will allow any fears that she has to become faith. Lord, I pray for Molly as she's in the hospital. Lord, I pray for those who are without work and that are looking for work, that are financially struggling. Lord, I I ask that you will allow them to see that there is no fear in love, but your perfect love drives out all fear. Lord, I pray that that they will understand that you have not given them a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Jesus, I pray that they and we will be people who our fears are turned to faith as we embrace who it is that you are and who it is you want to make us, and that we will cast the care of our souls onto you for eternity and in our daily lives. Lord, we ask this because we believe it's according to your will. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.